One semester of law school. One semester of criminal justice. Two experts. I'm Kristen Pitts. I'm Brandi Egan. Let's go to court. On this episode, I'll talk about a talented musician who blew his big break. Or did he? And I'll be talking about the kidnapping of Bobby Greenlease. I'm excited for another kidnapping. Do you know the kidnapping of Bobby Greenlee? No. Do you know my clarinet story? No. Thank God. Excellent. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> also, I'm super excited that we're doing this again. Oh my gosh. I like have been so excited for like two days that we were going to record today. Yes. So for everyone who doesn't know, we recorded a bunch of episodes ahead of time because I was going to be out of town for the summer, but now I'm back. This bitch is back. <laughs> That's what the banner says in my house. <laughs> All right, you ready? I am. Hit it. Okay. Today, I'm going to talk to you about chasing your dreams. Excellent. Eric. Get ready for some inspiration. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this will make you feel all kinds of things. This is now a true crime court comedy inspiration podcast. We're going to end with a quote from Oprah every week. <laughs> that would be great. That would be great. That would be so good. We're not going to do that. No, okay. <laughs> so, Eric um, Abramovitz has you been... Practice that, did you? <laughs> I stumbled over it every time, and I never bothered to, like, get it right. I was yeah. just like, I'm sure by the time we record yeah. in half an hour, <laughs> I'll have I'll this have down. down. I'm also not totally sure that I spelled it right in my notes. Anyway. Excellent. Eric has been playing the clarinet since he was seven years old. Mm. He's studied under some of Canada's best clarinet teachers. Um Shout out to our listener, Mark, who suggested that we do some episodes based in Canada. Yes. Mark, this one's for you. Shout out to Mark. So. Let's see how crazy these Canadians are. (laughs) (laughs) Turns out pretty nuts. (laughs) So Eric is amazing at the clarinet. He has six first place awards from the Canadian Music Competition, as well as a ton of other awards, including some first place awards from the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. He's been a featured soloist in a bunch of different high profile Canadian orchestras. In 2013, he was named a CBC Next Artist, which is an award for promising young classical musicians. Wow, he's just killing the woodwinds. He (laughs) slaying those. Yada, yada, yada. The guy is talented. <laughs> the guy's really good at blowing some wood. <laughs> is that what they say when you play the clarinet? That's exactly what <laughs> So this guy plays the shit out of the clarinet. Yes. And even though he's gotten all these awards and everyone recognizes how talented he is, oh my God, why is your microphone so low? <laughs> no, it's just it's like slowly getting I have a lip microphone. <laughs> You're not fit to blow on someone. I don't know what's happening. Do you think we need to start over? No. Is I it? am plenty loud enough. It's it's okay. just gradually gotten lower okay. this whole time. Gotcha. So we're back in business. <laughs> okay. So even though he's gotten all these awards and everyone knows he's super talented, why are you smiling at me like <laughs> that? I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's Christmas morning. 
Brandy, there's a Barbie Jeep out front for you. Oh my God! <laughs> I really wanted the Barbie Range Rover. <laughs> of course you did. Did you have a Barbie Jeep growing up? No. Neither did I. I wanted one so I bad. I know. I know. It killed me. We had one of those lame, like, Fred Flintstone ones. You know, the yellow. Oh, yeah. Red. We had one of those. Yeah. Yeah. Lame. Yeah. Our parents really cheaped out on us. Clearly. That's why we're so fucked up today. <laughs> <laughs> so, Eric wants to be better. Yeah. Better than... Better than he Better already than the best. is. Yeah, like he wants to just like shoot for the stars. Got it. So in December of 2013, he decides, you know what? I'm going to apply to study at the Colburn Conservatory of Music in L.A. Excellent. I'm going to finish the last two years of my bachelor's degree there, and it's going to be great. Because the Colburn Conservatory is an amazing school. They accept like 5% of the people who apply it's super competitive, and it is home to Yehuda Galad. Oh my God, Yehuda Galad! <laughs> I don't know who that is. Yes, you do. <laughs> we all know who he is. Um, if you know the clarinet, you know this name. He is like the top dog in okay. clarinet team. I played the clarinet <laughs> and for... You- what, a year? I think half a year. <laughs> no, it was a whole year. It was a whole year. I was not very good, and I've never heard of Yehuda Galad. Well. <laughs> Sounds like that's on him, right? <laughs> right. Clearly that's Yehuda's fault. <laughs> so, despite what you're saying, he is a pretty big deal. Uh, he's the music director for Colburn and one of the best clarinet instructors in the world. Eric really wanted to study under this guy. But it was super competitive. Basically, every talented clarinetist from all over the world wants to study under this guy. But Yehuda Galad only accepts two new clarinet students every mm, year. No. Eric decided, you know what? I'm going to give it a shot. Yeah. He applied in December of 2000. You 2000- miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Kristen. Oh my God, I'm inspired already. <laughs> I like to think you just have like a stack of posters over there. <laughs> in a minute, will you tell me to hang in there, baby? That's right. Don't worry. I told you this episode was going to be inspirational. <laughs> so he applies in December of 2013. And after months and months of pre screenings, he was invited out to LA to do a live audition. Mm. This took place in February of 2014. Eric and his parents fly out to L.A. He auditioned in front of this committee, which included a bunch of faculty members, and of course... Yehuda Galat. Yes. After the audition, they said, we'll let you know by April 1st. Eric was very nervous. He had a lot riding on this. Because not only was this a huge opportunity to study under one of the masters of his craft... But if he got this particular scholarship, it would cover his tuition, room and board, meals, living, I mean, some living expenses. I mean, this was like a huge deal. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote huge in all caps in my notes. (laughs) Thank you. That really, really gets the point across. You wouldn't have gotten it if (laughs) if I didn't put all that emphasis on huge. Months go by. 
And sure enough, right when they said they'd get in contact with him, Eric received the email from Colburn. He didn't make it. Mm. Instead, they offered him a position where he could study under Yehuda Galad at the University of Southern California. In that deal, they offered him $5,000 a year. Here's the thing. It costs way more than that. Oh, (laughs) yeah. So tuition at USC is like 50 grand a year. Yeah. $5,000 off isn't shit. No, that's like a shitty ass coupon. (laughs) You know what? That is exactly what I was thinking. It's like when you walk into a store and they're like, we'd like to offer you 10% off. Uh, Who cares? Yeah, that's not making me buy anything extra. No. So Eric was devastated. He couldn't afford to pay that kind of money. So he wrote a polite email back thanking them for the opportunity and declining the offer. Mm -hmm. He was really, really upset. He just felt like, oh, God, that was a huge opportunity. and I just wasn't good enough. Yeah. But, you know, he kept studying music. He still loved the clarinet. He finished his bachelor's degree at McGill University in Canada. But after he graduated from McGill, he still had that dream of studying under Yehuda Galad. So he decided to audition for a two-year graduate certificate in performance at the University of Southern California. Mm -hmm. He would have preferred to do the master's program there, but it was too expensive. So he just went for the thing that he could afford that would still get him in the room with this master instructor. Uh So Eric goes to the audition. Are you wondering when this is going to take a weird turn? Yes. Okay. So Eric goes to the audition, and it goes okay, um, except for this super weird interaction he had with Yehuda Galad. Uh huh. What do you think his friends call him? I have no idea. Yehuda, Huda. Well, and who knows if I'm even pronouncing it right? <laughs> okay, wait, let me backtrack. I'm for I, sure not pronouncing it right. Not pronouncing it correctly. <laughs> so who the hell knows what okay. they call him? All right. Just curious. Joe. I can't imagine everybody calls him Yehuda Galad every time they mention his name. I feel like it's one of those names you got to say the whole thing. <laughs> In my notes here, I have his full name every, every single time. time. <laughs> Meanwhile, with Eric, I'm like, Eric. Yes. <laughs> so, in this super weird interaction, uh-huh. Yehuda is like, why are you here? Two years ago... You auditioned for Colburn, and I accepted you, (gasps) and you said no. What are you doing back here two years later? Your face right now. What the fuck? And Eric's like, sir, (laughs) with all due respect. I can assure you I was not accepted. (laughs) Yes, yes. He's like... Like trying to be as polite as yeah. possible. This is an audition, but he's like, um, you rejected me. Yeah. I, I promise you that's how it went down. Yeah. I was devastated. But Galad's like, no, 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 no. You rejected Colburn. You rejected me. So they're having like this super awkward exchange where both of them is like, this guy's nuts. Yeah. But Eric's like, Okay, (laughs) this guy clearly rejected me. I remember how devastating it was. I wouldn't have gotten that wrong. So he just tries to brush it off. He told himself, this guy auditions tons of people every year. 
He just has me confused because this was two years ago. He doesn't remember the exact. Unless. (gasps) He's Mm. so amazing at the clarinet that he couldn't forget him. (laughs) Baby, come back. (laughs) (laughs) So at any rate, um, Eric got into the program. But this confusion over him either rejecting Colburn or being rejected by Colburn wasn't going away. Yeah. His new classmates kept being like, dude, why did you reject Colburn? He's got to call up Colburn and figure out what the fuck's going on here. Mm-hmm. At this point, Eric is like, okay, you guys, I did not reject <laughs> Colburn. Colburn rejected me. It sucked, but it happened. Yeah. But finally, he's like, okay, all right, I'm going to dig up that old email. I've still got it from two years ago, and I'm going to settle this once and for all. Gets into his email. He finds it. He forwards it to Yehuda Galad and says, see, I told you, you rejected me. It's not a legit email. Yehuda Galad looks at it, and he's like, oh, my God. I never sent this. He looks at the email address. The email address is galadyehuda09 at gmail.com. Okay. He's like, that's not my email First of all. (laughs) Come on, Eric. (laughs) You thought that was the email address that your rejection letter was coming from? No. I'm kind of with you there. (laughs) For me, the 09 is what. Or it should be at like... At Colburn.edu. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. At this point, everyone is shocked. Someone tricked Eric into thinking he didn't get this prestigious scholarship. Yeah. Someone robbed him of a huge opportunity. Who would do such a thing? Eric starts talking to his friends and he's like, I don't get it. This is like, this is like evil. This is weird. I don't have anybody in my life who would do this to me, but clearly someone did this to me. Yeah. And it has to be somebody he knew well. Mm -hmm. His friends are like, "Mm, remember that lady you were dating back in 2014? Yeah, she was kind of (gasps) sketch. So... Eric was skeptical. Jennifer Lee had been a pretty good girlfriend, he thought. They started dating in September of 2013. By about a month later, she was staying at his apartment almost all the time. He had trusted Jennifer. He let her use his laptop. Oh, my gosh. He gave her his passwords. (gasps) She gave him her passwords. You're shaking your head. Oh, my God. This is crazy. Yeah. So Eric said, it was scary to even confront that thought, given how much I trusted her. But over time, it started to sink in, and I became more and more suspicious that maybe she had done it, as unpleasant as that was to imagine. So, oh, my (laughs) gosh. Right? Wow. So Eric's like, okay, maybe she did this to me. How do I figure it out? He gets on his computer. He's got the email address. 
He sat down and he thought really hard, what were some of her old passwords that she used to use? And he remembered a few of them, so he started testing them out. And eventually he hit that point where the account gives you the email and phone number recovery information. Uh Guess fucking what? His phone number? Or no, it was her phone number. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And of course he knew. It was like her phone number, her email address. Yep. He was like, oh my God. She did this. He said, it was a simultaneous stab to the back and the heart. It really was the last person I would have wanted to find out it was. They're already broken up at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Why'd they break up? Do you know? It said unrelated reasons. Mm. Obviously, because Yeah, because he didn't, he didn't even know. know this was going on. Yeah, but um I think we can guess. Oh my god. I mean, she sounds great. She sounds just like maybe just like a little clingy <laughs> or <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like maybe she doesn't have her own hobbies. <laughs> so Eric was hurt. He was angry. So he said to himself, let's go to court. <laughs> Pretty soon, the whole story unravels. Turns out Colburn emailed Eric on March 27th, 2014. They offered him Everything he'd ever wanted. Oh, my gosh. Full ride, plenty of money, a chance to study under Yehuda Galad. But Jennifer Lee saw the email before Eric did, and she didn't want him to move out of Canada and away from her. So she did what any loving partner no. would do. Stage five clinger. <laughs> I mean, this is like stage five clinger to the max. Yeah, yeah. This is like... Stage 10. I don't even know. Exponential. (laughs) So she responded to that email from Eric's account and said, no thanks. I have to decline this offer because I will, quote, be elsewhere. Then she deleted that email from Colburn. Mm -hmm. Like you do. Yeah. We've all been there. Wow. Then... And once again, we can all relate to this. <laughs> she created the fake email account. Yes. Who hasn't created a fake email account <laughs> yep. to crush someone's dreams? Crush the dreams of someone you love the most. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to go to L.A.? The traffic, I hear, is terrible. It's just terrible there. It's, and right now, they're having like a crazy heat wave. It's like hey, 111 degrees there right now. She did him a favor, right? right? They don't have air conditioning in L.A. Yeah. most places, so just forget that. Mm. So using that account, she rejected her boyfriend from Colburn. Oh, my god! And then she offered him a $5,000 scholarship that she knew he couldn't what take. What if he tried to accept that? What was her plan? See, that's... I know it's silly to like try to pick the part that you find the grossest in this because it's all gross, but I think that's the grossest. Yeah. To then turn around and offer him yeah. $5,000. Because my, I'm guessing she's thinking, okay, he's talented enough. He has to know that he would get in on some level. Yes. But I, at the same time, have to use all my knowledge of his financial limitations against him and oh offer him ex- that is the exact terrible. amount. Yeah. That's terrible. Mm-hmm. She's a something. 
I don't even know how to describe her. <laughs> she. I mean, that's awful. It is awful. That is just plain awful. Yeah. You know what this story made me wonder? How often does stuff like this happen and no one ever figures it out? Right. Because how weird is it? I hope not that often. I would hope not too, but like you think about what are the chances that like two years later. You would ever, yeah, come face to face with that person again and they would. Yeah, exactly. Because I think a lot of people would just be like, no, we're not letting this guy back in because remember what he did to us two years ago. But instead they had that super awkward conversation. Like, you rejected us. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's it's crazy. Uh so they broke up a few months later, like I said. Mm-hmm. She never came clean about what she did, obviously. Obviously. Um so this went to court in Canada. And Eric accused Jennifer of all sorts of things, including deceit, invasion of privacy, infliction of mental suffering, loss of educational opportunity, and delay in the exercise of his chosen profession, which... That's a thing you can... (laughs) That's what the article said. (laughs) (laughs) It seems to be, like, way too on the nose, but hey, maybe that's a thing. Are you ready for a weird Canada thing that upsets me greatly? Yes. Okay. I'm going to read to you directly from a CNN article. When served with the initial lawsuit, Lee did not respond to Abramovitz's lawyers. (laughs) Sorry. So she lost by default. Under Canadian law, a defendant in default is deemed to admit the truth of all allegations of fact made in the plaintiff's claim. So basically, Jennifer admits guilt without having to show her face, which disappoints me greatly because I would love to hear from her. I would love to hear more information. What? I don't think that's specific to Canada. You don't think so? No, I think that that happens in civil court a lot. In Where the, they can just not show up? Mm-hmm. Like I know specifically in divorce court, if some, if the, if the defendant or the person who's being filed against doesn't respond the filer just gets whatever they want are you trying to tell me that i'm not an expert in any way because that makes total sense now that you say it like that i thought it was some weird canada thing i take it back canada i have no issues wow yeah Okay, yeah, that makes total sense. So if you knew that you were going to lose anyway, you might as well not show your face, and then you don't have to... Yeah, embarrass yourself any further. Yeah. Or see your ex-boyfriend in court. Whose life you ruined. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, now I feel silly. No, sorry! (laughs) (laughs) No, someone would have corrected me. Better from you. (laughs) Is it? No. Uh, so Jennifer's guilty. And that left one major question for the court to decide. Yeah, what do you do? Like, what's the what's the punishment? Yeah. How do you calculate yeah. what she owes Eric? Exactly. How do you put a price tag on what she did to him? I have no idea. Mm-mm. Well, actually, okay, let's think about that for a minute. How $12. <laughs> Canadian dollars or U.S.? <laughs> Canadian dollars. Oh, that's rough. Yeah. <laughs> How do you think you'd, you would go about calculating that? Uh, okay, so you'd have to 
the value of the program that right. he missed out on. Right. Any living expenses, all of that. Right. And then the unknown is what career that could have led to. Yeah. And what salary he would have gotten from that. Yeah. Okay, you're you're exactly your mind is exactly where the judge's mind eventually yeah. got. Okay, so I'm gonna tell you this quick thing. So Yehuda Galad was pissed mm-hmm. about this. And he wanted to help Eric out. So he wrote a letter to the judge just to kind of help the judge understand what exactly this deception had done to Eric professionally and financially. He wrote, I am very frustrated that a highly talented musician like Eric was the victim of such an unthinkable, immoral act that delayed his progress and advancement as an up-and-coming young musician and delayed his embarking on a most promising career. Wow. He talked in his letter about how, like, just in the short time they've been working together, Eric has improved tremendously. Yeah. And that shows, like, if he'd yeah. gotten that instruction mm-hmm. earlier, God. Wow. I, it's so frustrating. That I don't is. even have the words. Yeah. Um, so in his decision, the judge wrote, Mr. Abramovitz lost a unique and prestigious educational opportunity one that would have advanced his career as a professional clarinetist. It is difficult to quantify such a loss. So this judge was in a really tough position. He had to factor in all the knowns and unknowns, kind of like what you were saying. Yeah. He started with the obvious stuff. Obviously, Jennifer owed him for the scholarship that mm-hmm. she rejected. Mm-hmm. Um, and he decided that Jennifer also owed him Two years salary at a good symphony orchestra. Mm -hmm. Because that's kind of what they figured, like, in his letter, um, he wrote, hey, here's kind of what you can expect to to earn at a decent symphony. You know, Eric definitely would have gotten into a decent symphony after two years in this program. Blah, 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 blah. But the judge also talked about, like, there's this thing that you can't quite nail down precisely which is that in the arts you have sometimes a big break yeah how do you put a price tag on that yeah you don't know if he would have gotten it but you don't not know right exactly (laughs) well he certainly would have been way more likely to get it had he been able to go through this program and gotten the exposure that that would have led to absolutely yeah how much do you think the judge I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> In total, the judge found that Jennifer owed Eric three hundred and fifty thousand Canadian dollars. Most of that was for lost scholarship and income, but a portion of it was compensation for having quote a dream snatched from him by a person he trusted. Yeah. Yeah. Where are they now? What, what do you think about that amount? I think it's on the low side. Um, I think it's fair, but I think it is probably like factored on the low end of the range. I think, um, I think it's definitely on the low end. Mm -hmm. I think that he should have penalized her a little more for like what she did. What? (laughs) Why'd you say it like that? Oh, I said penalized, didn't I? (laughs) Instead of penalized. (laughs) that make you uncomfortable, Brandy? (laughs) Why? What does that make you think of when I say penalized? Stop saying it. It We 
should have to pay more for what she did. Yeah. Because what she did was so fucked up. Yeah. Um, but I think when you find out how he's doing now, okay. it, it'll All make right, you kind of think. Yeah. So we'll start with Jennifer Lee. Yes. I assume she's single. I have no idea how she's There's doing. no criminal aspect to this, no fraud or anything. I mean, it didn't get into that. I mean, maybe the... I know. I know. That's frustrating. I, w- I would think there should be. Yeah. But All as right. for... What's she doing? She's living in a... I think she's living with her parents. by the river. Okay. I think she's living with her parents. All right. Yeah. Excellent. But she's also... she So she went to study music at McGill, too. So maybe she's trying to... Maybe, she's jealous. Maybe they'll... You know what? That... None of the articles I read touched on yeah. that. It was all about like the girlfriend wanting to, you know, be with her boyfriend longer. But I think that had to have been yeah. a factor. Yeah. I wonder if she also played the clarinet. Yeah, she was probably like second chair. Mm-hmm. Like wanting to punch him in the back of the head. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm thinking back to this. What? <laughs> Do you remember like way back in the day there was this website called failbook.com oh, where yeah. people would like post um I'm sorry this is way off track. But they would post like where their friends like either misspelled or did mm-hmm. something really dumb on Facebook. So someone <laughs> <laughs> What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> so someone someone wrote like some this long post that they were like you know, I always try to be a good guy. I always try to stay calm. And then he had a misspelling, and he goes, I try never to blow my composer. <laughs> Someone wrote, I'm so glad you're not blowing your composer. That's a terrible way to get first chair in band. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so now, I mean, that was like years ago that I read that. But now anytime I hear first chair in band, I always think, of like, don't blow your composer. <laughs> So anyway, Eric right now, he's doing just fine. He currently plays for the Nashville Symphony Orchestra. He just got appointed the associate principal clarinetist at the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. He's dating someone new. They've been together for two years. And he says it's a really healthy relationship. Excellent. Um, he's, he's never given over a email password again. I would hope not. <laughs> He says, I'd like to think my judgment of character has improved a little bit. I hope so, too. Do you and Zach know each other's email passwords? No, I don't think so. Eric knows, or Eric, (laughs) whoa, Norman knows mine. No, you know what? (laughs) I do know it. Uh Uh-huh. Just because it's the same password that (laughs) he uses for everything. One, two, three, four. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I love Brandy. I love Brandy. One, two, three, four. <laughs> Gee, I can't wait till I take her protein shakes out of the car every Sunday. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I, I've never logged into his email, though. Hmm. Brandy, this is a safe space. <laughs> no, he does listen, so. Yeah, no, I wouldn't have any re- If I wanted to see his email, I would just ask him and he'd show it to me. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> But what if he had like a prestigious scholarship coming in that I you would wanted be so to intercept? I'm so excited for him. Yeah, and like, oh my God, how great. Delete. <laughs> <laughs> Just normal stuff. What if Norman had 
ripped up your acceptance letter under your writing program. Was it an email or was it a letter? It was an email because it's 2018. <laughs> 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 that was so bitchy. <laughs> My email address? Yeah. <laughs> no, your password? I think he does, yeah. So he didn't delete your acceptance letter, no. so I guess he loves you. I guess so. Sure he's back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can't be 100% sure. <laughs> so get this. Eric um, was asked how he feels about Jennifer, and he said he doesn't harbor any ill feelings toward fuck her. Fuck that, I would. I'd be like, fuck that bitch. Do you think he's lying? Yes, I think he's okay. lying. I, that makes That's me feel better. That's what you say out loud. I don't but know like, that I, I would. hope she trips and rips her face open <laughs> on a lube rack. On a what? <laughs> Did you say on a lube rack? <laughs> what? Is this old Paula Poundstone stand-up special <laughs> where she's like taking questions from the crowd and like this girl's like yeah my mom tripped <laughs> the mechanic shop and ripped her face open on a loop <laughs> and Paula Poundstone's like what was your mom doing with her face near a loop rack <laughs> okay that's fucking ridiculous yes <laughs> But no, that makes me feel a lot better. Well, I saw that special, I think, when I was 12, and that uh, stuck with me. (laughs) (laughs) Made you who you are today. That's right. Really formed me as an individual. So no, I I read that. No way he's like, oh, I am new ill mover. Yeah, that's what you say out loud when you're a a nice, good person. Maybe I'm not a nice, good person. I don't know. Like, you don't think you'd say that in an um, interview? You 100% would say yeah, that in an interview. Yeah, you're right. I would. Like, yeah, I just hope they're happy and living oh, their best boy. life. I, I hope he learned from this. Yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he said, despite what happened, I think I landed on my feet and the trajectory one more time. <laughs> <laughs> Is that not how you pronounce trajectory? Shut up. <laughs> Don't show off That's with your 2018, Christian. <laughs> Gotta admit, that was a good line. That's good. Despite what happened, I think I landed on my feet, and the trajectory I'm on is still what I wanted for myself. Just two years or more behind. Yeah. Did he get the money? Well, that's the other thing is like, so she owes him that money, but, but I'm sure she doesn't have it. Yeah, exactly. So. Should have gone on Judge Judy. <laughs> judge Judy would have ripped her a new Yeah, one. and Judge Judy pays the judgment, so you for sure get the money. Yeah, but I mean, what's the max? She always gives like five Oh, yeah, grand. it's small claims, so yeah. it can't be. Yeah. yeah. Not going to get 350 but he didn't get 350 anyway. I guarantee it. Sorry, Eric. <laughs> Should have gone on Judge Judy like maybe five times. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> for each individual. Yeah. 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 See, there you go. Hmm. He should have consulted us. <laughs> <laughs> that case was crazy. Yeah. Um, I So it's a fresh one, obviously, as Stop I love to say. saying that. Don't penalize me. Stop! It's a fresh one. So, yeah, I saw that. Uh-huh. I was like, that is nuts. Yeah. That poor guy. And then I saw it was a Canada case. And I was like, Mark. 
doing it. Mark's going to love it. Mark is going to love it. Mark, you better love it. You better tweet us <laughs> how much you love it. Can Even you, if you don't love it. Can you imagine if Mark was like, mm, it wasn't that good. <laughs> I'm not really into woodwinds. <laughs> do you have anything about drummers? I do like a good percussion section. <laughs> okay, I am super excited about your kidnapping. How many more kidnappings? This is it. This is the last kidnapping. Oh my god. This is I'm done with kidnappings Season after finale this. Yes. Of the kidnappings. Uh, you know what happened is I found the one kidnapping. You know, you inspired me to do the Walter Collins case. And then each time I would research a case, there would be some mention of another case and it was like me me one more. Yeah. And so <laughs> This is the final kidnapping. You this were trapped. Did, there were a couple of other kidnappings mentioned in my research of this and I was like, "You know what? <laughs> You're like, "Sorry, kids. Yeah, I'm done." <laughs> okay, I am Wait, is it going to be a gross horrible one? Um, okay, that's my answer. Hey, it's local. <gasps> I love local. Yes. Um, someone tweeted at us today. Did you see it? I did. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I guess I'll cut that since neither one of us can remember <laughs> <Yeah>. the exact. <laughs> um, she's her name's Jessica. Okay. And she, I believe it's Jessica. And she said, um, everything I know about Kansas City, I've learned on this podcast and I feel like it's a scary place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. According to this podcast, According Kansas podcast, City is Kansas terrifying. City is a terrifying place. Really, it's a great place to live. <laughs> okay. Let me set the scene for you. Please do. It's September 28th, 1953. Oh, I love an old one. Okay. <laughs> We're at 2920 Verona Road, Mission Hills, Kansas. <gasps> Hold on. I've got to look this up. Okay. <laughs> Hold on, hold the phone. 2920? 2920 Verona Road, Mission Hills, Kansas. You can't really see the house because it sets back from the street. Damn it, Brandy. You should have cut down a tree. I should have gone, gone there and taken a picture. Yeah, damn. All you can really see is... Um, There's like a circle drive in front, it looks like. You know, I... I have always wanted a circle drive. I feel like you know you've made it in life yes, when you've got a you've circle, got a circle drive. drive. Yes. Okay. Oh no, I. Okay, I moved it around in Google Maps. I can see. You can see the house. Yeah. Uh, nice place. So this is the home of Robert and Virginia Greenleys. The residence is a quaint seven-bedroom, ten-bath. <laughs> With just over 13,000 square feet. <laughs> for a second, for like a split second, I was like, does Brandy not know what quaint means? <laughs> it's just a cute little cottage. It's a little cozy little house. Mm-hmm. It's a good starter home. Yeah. Um, so it was built in 1929, and its current value is estimated at approximately $6.7 million. Which in Kansas City is fucking crazy. That's I know super some of you are listening yes. to this in California and you're like, oh, you're no like, big oh, deal. Yeah. No, no, that's crazy fucking expensive. Mm-hmm. So Mission Hills was at this time in 1953 and still is today the most affluent suburb of the Kansas City metro. Oh, hell yeah. It's huge homes. They're beautiful. Um, it's a really nice place to drive through. <laughs> I think you just revealed a lot about who we are. When it's like, 
<laughs> yeah, I've seen it from a car. Yes. <laughs> so in 1953, Robert Greenlease was one of the richest men in Kansas City. He had amassed his fortune, which was estimated to be around $24 million at the time, which in today's money... Oh, my God. ...would be approximately $226 <gasps> million. Damn. Yeah. So he'd amassed his fortune in the auto industry. Wow. He In 1908, he opened the first Cadillac dealership west of the Mississippi, <gasps> and it was beyond successful. Greenlease Motor Car Company was located in what is now Union Hill. Oh, my God. Um, at the corner of Gillum and McGee. Oh, my God. Um, it's This the, is so lame for our listeners. The building, is, like, yeah, the building is still there. It's on the National Registry of Historic Places, and it's now the Union Hill Athletic Club. Oh, if you've my seen God. It, it sits on the corner. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes. That's crazy. <laughs> yes. So that used to be the Greenlease Motor Car Company. Robert Greenlease's dealership went like gangbusters, and he began selling cars faster than GM could get them to him. Whoa. The dealership grew to be really prestigious, and it became kind of a status symbol to have the silver by Greenlease emblem on the back of your car. Wow. He became one of the biggest individual stockholders in General Motors. And at one point in the 40s, he loaned the growing General Motors company a million dollars to help them expand. Whoa. Yes. Robert and his first wife, Bessie, had an adopted son named Paul, but Robert didn't have any biological children until he and Bessie divorced and he married Virginia, 27 years his junior Ew. in 1939. No, no. <laughs> She wasn't, like, super young. She was just younger than him. By 27 years? Yeah. Fuck off, Robert. <laughs> That's she gross. She was, like, uh, like, 30, and he was 50. Gross. All right. Do you disagree? I, I think what the older you get, the less the age gap matters. Well, yeah, I agree. It would be more disturbing if she was 10. And <laughs> Okay, so um, they married in 1939. I'll allow it. (laughs) (laughs) And then Robert and Virginia welcomed a daughter in 1941 and a son in 1947. Naturally, they named them Virginia and Robert. (laughs) Why? Why? It was a huge home, but there was only room for two names in there. (laughs) Yeah, I don't get that. Um, Robert Sr. was 65 years old when Robert Jr., Bobby, was born. It's pretty old. Oh, 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 Brandy, don't judge. Um, You know, uh, the mom was in her 30s. She was 38. Oh, she was so old. (laughs) Okay, so he's 65 with an infant. Yeah, with a new baby. Okay, so let's go back to the Greenlees home. Okay. It's September 28th, 1953. Gotcha. At around 11.30 a.m., the phone rang, and on the line was Sister Morand, 
a nun at Notre Dame de Sion, the private Catholic school Bobby attended. Mm-hmm. Still around. Still around. 38th and Locust. None in it For up. anybody following along on their Kansas City map. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and she was calling to check in on Mrs. Greenlease as less than an hour earlier, her sister had come to school in a frantic state and said she needed to pick Bobby up as his mother had just had a heart attack while shopping at the country club plaza. Whoa. Okay. Yes. So she's calling the home of the Greenleases, the nun is, Uh to just check in and see how Virginia's doing because Virginia's sister had come to the school and said, I have to get Bobby. I have to take him to the hospital. His mother's had a heart attack. But when she calls the home, Virginia answers the phone. And she said, the nun is very confused. <gasps> oh, no. And Virginia's confused. Oh, no. And she's like, what do you mean my sister picked up Bobby? Oh, no, I don't have a sister. Right? Okay, so I looked really hard to find out if she really had a sister. Okay. I don't know. Okay. But for sure her sister didn't pick up Bobby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Virginia's like, you must be mistaken. I'm perfectly fine. I'm not ill. Where is my son? Oh, shit. And the nun has to be like, I sent your son off with your sister who's not your sister. Yeah. It was then that Sister Miranda realized oh, she'd made a grave oh, error. Oh, my God. I've got goosebumps. Oh, that's terrible. In her haste to get Bobby due to the woman's state, the woman yeah. was frantic. She'd never asked for any verification of who she was. Oh, my God. And when Bobby came to the office... He placed his hand in the woman's and gone willingly with her. How old was he? He was six. Oh, no. And so the nun believed it was his aunt. Oh. By now it was clear that Bobby had been kidnapped. Oh, my gosh. The Greenleases immediately called police, and the police quickly let the public know of Bobby's kidnapping. But they didn't have a ton to go on. They had the nun's description of the woman who had come to the school... Mm-hmm. Um, and she had taken Bobby in a cab, so they had the cab driver's description, and he had dropped them off at a parking lot where they had gotten into another car, a 1947 Plymouth station wagon with another man. So they had that description, but that was it. They just had the nun's description and the cab driver's description, and then the description of this car. Oh, my God. Wasn't really enough to do much of anything. By that evening, though, the Greenleases received a ransom note. It read, your boy's been kidnapped. Get $600,000, which is like $5.6 million in today's money. Ooh. Get $600,000 in 20s and 10s Federal Reserve notes from all 12 districts. Which what? I don't really know what that means, but... That just sounds like more of a pain in the ass than anything. Well, yeah, and it says, we realize it takes it will take a few days to get this amount. The boy will be in good hands. When you have the money ready, put an ad in the Kansas City Star that says, we'll meet in Chicago, signed Mr. G. Do not call the police or try to use chemicals on bills or take numbers. Do not try to use a radio to catch us or the boy dies. I don't know what that means either. Do not try to use a radio to catch us. Yeah, I don't know. If you try to trap us, your wife, your other child, and yourself will be killed. You will be watched all the time. You will be told how to contact us with the money. When you get this note, let us know by driving down Main Street between 39th and 29th for 20 minutes with a white rag on the car antenna. 
If you do exactly as we say and try no tricks, your boy will be back safe within 24 hours after we check the money. Deliver the money in an army duffel bag. Be ready to deliver at once on contact $400,000 in 20s and $20,000 in 10s. The note was signed M, just the letter M. Okay. At midnight, Robert Greenlees did just as he was instructed and drove up and down Main Street between 29th and 39th for 20 minutes with a white rag tied to his car antenna to signal the kidnappers. The following morning, he went to Commerce Trust Company, which is Commerce Bank now, and met with a bank executive whom he instructed to gather the ransom money exactly as it was laid out in the note. That bank executive was Arthur Eisenhower brother of current president Dwight D. Eisenhower. What? Yes. Oh, my God. Arthur set to work immediately. Um, but wait, um, he didn't say, oh, this is ransom for my kid. No, he did. Oh, okay. They, it, it, so he the, involved the police? The police were involved, but he didn't let the police, like, intervene. Okay. He did. They called the police immediately before they got the ransom note. And right. So the police were aware of everything that was going on. But he was like... I want to try to follow yes. the instructions as closely as yes. I can. Yeah, okay, yeah. gotcha. So... The Eisenhower's like, okay, I'm going to draw up all this ransom, but this is going to take several days. Of course. To do, because I got to call these notes from 12 different, from the 12 different districts, whatever the fuck Mm -hmm. that means. Mm -hmm. And it's a shit ton of money. News of the kidnapping quickly spread and it became a worldwide story. Law agencies and the public alike were shocked. There had not been a kidnapping of this magnitude in a decade. More than a decade, because the Lindbergh Law really mm-hmm. cracked down um, on the penalty that could be carried with kidnapping. I think you mean penalty. <laughs> <laughs> so the Lindbergh Law allowed, basically, if you kidnapped somebody and took them across state lines or kidnapped somebody and harmed them in any way, yeah. you became eligible for the death penalty. Right. I mean, it really cracked down. Yes. Suddenly it wasn't such exactly. an attractive crime exactly. anymore. Um, so the FBI was super eager to get involved. They're like, let us in there. Let's see what we can figure yeah. out. But under provisions of the Lindbergh Law, they couldn't enter the case for seven days. Why? The law stated that after seven days, if the kidnap if the kidnap victim was not recovered, authorities could presume that the kidnappers had taken the victim across state lines, and then they would have broken a federal law, which allowed the FBI to intervene. Oh. So until that seven day mark, or until they had proof that the that the kidnap victim had been taken across state lines, they could not join the case. Ugh. Isn't that like just frustrating? Well, in seven days is a very, that's a very long, long time. time. Obviously, that law has been changed. Yes, now. yeah, that seems ridiculous. Yes. But um, the Greenleases, like I said, were insistent that the police and the FBI keep their distance. They yeah. didn't want to anger the kidnappers, and they believed if they just followed their instructions to the letter, they would get Bobby back. They just could not imagine that anyone would harm an innocent six-year-old boy. Oh, the kidnappers, the kidnappers. I don't know how I pronounced it. I think I said it weird. Did you? I don't think you did. I think I said kidnapper. (laughs) 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 The kidnappers. (laughs) 
offered proof that they had the boy by sending the Greenleases Bobby's Jerusalem cross, which was a medallion that he had worn on his uniform okay. the day of his abduction. Okay. And the man who called himself M stayed in nearly constant contact with the family, calling them several times a day. But because the FBI wasn't involved yet, like they weren't tracing the calls or anything Are like that. Are you kidding me? Yeah. They didn't start, like it wasn't until like the last couple calls that they even recorded the calls or anything. What? And he was calling multiple times a day. And at times he sounded confused or drunk or on drugs. And this oh. led to two botched ransom deliveries because M gave contradictory instructions on where to leave the duffel bag containing the $600,000. Oh, my God. Oh. So several days have gone by now because, like, the it took time to get the ransom money together. And then the drop is going wrong. They can't figure out where to leave the duffel. And they're like, we just want to give you this money so that we can get our yeah. kid back. Yeah. Like, well, I'm, uh, I'm so frustrated. They had the technology to trace the calls. Mm-hmm. But the local authorities didn't have that technology? I guess. I, I believe. Fuck all of that. <laughs> and he's calling multiple times multiple a day? Multiple times a day. Like an insecure babysitter? Yeah, like, like what the hell point, is that? At one point, Virginia is like, I'm going to ask you some questions that I want you to ask Bobby. And if you can yeah. give me the answers, then I'll know that he's okay. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And they're like, we promise you he's okay. He's so annoying. We're just ready to get him back to you. And she's oh like, well, God. yeah, he's a rambunctious six-year-old. Yeah, I'm he's sure a six-year-old. he's driving you crazy. Didn't you think and about so that? And so she asked him, like, what was the name of their driver on their trip in Europe this right. past summer? Okay. And then another question. I can't remember what the other question was. And so he's like, okay, let me get the answers, and then I'll call you back. Mm-hmm. And so, like, they spoke a couple times after that, and he never gave the answers. And so finally she was Aww. like, what What have you gotten the the answers from Bobby and he's like, Bobby won't speak to me. So no, I haven't gotten the answers yet. So now it's October 4th. So six days have gone by seven days. Okay. No longer than that. 30 days in September. Yeah. So six days. (laughs) Do you like how I was not helping you at all? I was like, sounds, sounds like there might be a math problem here. I'm going to just sip on my iced coffee. So it's October 4th and a third attempt to drop the ransom is arranged. And after making sure everyone was clear on the instructions, Mm -hmm. Two Greenlease associates dropped the duffel in eastern Johnson or eastern Jackson County, where Lee Summit Road crosses the Little Blue River. Oh my God! Yeah. So there was like there's like a little wooden bridge there. Okay. Um, where Lee Summit Road goes over the Little Blue River, and they dropped it like on the bridge. Okay. M soon called to report that he had picked it up. And he said that the directions for picking up Bobby would be sent to the Western Union Telegraph office in Pittsburgh, Kansas. What? About 100 miles south of Kansas City. So (sighs) the two Greenlease associates drove there, arriving the morning of October 5th. Skeptics wondered how the Greenleases could be so sure that Bobby would be returned to them Mm -hmm. and how they could just hand over $600,000 like that. Which was the largest ransom in history to that point. Because they had the money 
And they wanted their kid. And yeah. they wanted to believe it. Yeah. I. And it was believed that the Greenleases were heavily influenced by the Mary McElroy kidnapping. Oh, of course they were. Her father had followed the rules and he'd gotten his daughter back. Yeah. Bobby had not been kidnapped by the same charming kidnappers as Mary, though. Oh. And no telegraph with instructions to Bobby's location ever came. The Greenleys family would not get the same happy ending that the McElroy family had. Bobby had been kidnapped by Carl Austin Hall and Bonnie Brown Hetty. Carl was a 33-year-old small-time crook who'd spent an inherited fortune. He inherited like $200,000 when his father died. Which is how much today? (gasps) (laughs) Brandy! (laughs) I think I have my inflation calculator up, though. But it would have to be like $2.5 million, right? (laughs) No! (laughs) (laughs) Nice try. Well, (laughs) I have to be the... Wait, actually, I could do the math real fast. Yeah, do it, do it. Where is uh, just under $2 million. Wow, and he just blew, blew all it. that. He blew it on drugs, alcohol, bad business ventures, gambling. He bought a house on off of Ward Parkway somewhere, but I couldn't find an address for it. <laughs> so. My biggest fantasy <laughs> is that it would be like my house. <laughs> <laughs> what a douche. Yeah, so he totally squandered his inheritance. Uh-huh. Um, and then he turned to this lifestyle of crime to try and make some money. Bonnie was a 40-year-old divorcee who was running a prostitution business out of her St. Joseph, Missouri home. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) That's just not what I was expecting. (laughs) She had been married to um, a pretty well-to-do guy. I can't remember what business he was in, but it went south. And then Mm -hmm. she had married some other guy. And he was like a small time criminal and she was kind of like his getaway driver sometimes. And he ended up being shot in the and killed in the um, when he was, I don't know, doing some robbery or something. And when the police let her know that he had been shot and killed, she was like, "Eh, it's too bad. (laughs) (laughs) Took it real well, did she? Oh, ain't that a shame? So. Um, So Carl and Bonnie met at a hotel bar in May 1953 and quickly moved in together at Bonnie's St. Joseph home. So they met in May and they did this kidnapping in September and they were already calling each other like their common law spouse by this time. So honestly, I don't think anything would surprise me about two people who are like, let's kidnap. Yeah. Yeah. Like, of course, of course they did that. So why not? What? Carl had gone to military school with Robert Greenlease's older son, Paul. Oh. And had for years dreamed of a way that he could take advantage of that connection and somehow take part of the family's wealth. Did he go to the military school that's in, um, shit. Boonville? No. Oh, that's the one he went to. Oh, well, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Never mind. Which one did you want him to go to? Um, the one that's in, shoot, it's in Missouri. Uh Uh-huh. Why can I not think of the name of it? Wentworth? Yeah. Yeah, huh? No, that's not where he went. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. 
Well, I, that tangent was worth it. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of those. But no, he went to some military school in Boonville, Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, so you like the diet snapple. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm just going to interject with totally worthless shit now. So he was jealous of the family and he wanted just a piece of their wealth. They had all this money. What did they need with all of it? And so with Bonnie coming into his life, he finally thought of the perfect plan. The kidnapping for ransom scheme would set them up for life if they could get a big enough payout out of it. Mm -hmm. So Carl set out to doing some calculations. What was the maximum amount of money that he could easily transport by weight and volume. Like he's like doing wow. like legit math to figure out how much this would weigh, how much space it would take up, how he would transport it. And that's how he settled on the number of $600,000 in that bizarre. specific denominations, you know, 400,000 of it in twenties and then 200,000 of it in tens. Wow. Yes. Very bizarre. Once he had put together what he thought was a foolproof plan, he ran it by Bonnie. And she was in. Why, that's better than sex, she replied, which is just disgusting. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That's so weird. Yeah. Yeah. So on September 28th, the day of the kidnapping, they drove from uh, St. Joe Mm -hmm. to Kansas City. They stopped at some bar that opened early in the morning and had a couple drinks. And then they went to Kat's Drugstore at 39th and Main. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, Norman and I always stop at antique stores when we go to St. Joe. (laughs) It's basically the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) Any day now we're going to kidnap somebody. (laughs) Um. Carl went inside and bought Bonnie some, like, lozenges so that Mm -hmm. she wouldn't smell like alcohol when she went to the school. Then she got out of the car. She walked a couple blocks and got a cab and had the cab take her to Notre Dame to Scion. She went in, told the sob story about how Virginia had had a heart attack on the plaza and how she needed to take Bobby. She must have been a really good actress, too. Yeah, and, I mean, she just looked like a... Yeah. Normal woman. Like yeah. she, yeah, she must have been very believable. Mm-hmm. So the nun, so the nun who went and got Bobby was yeah. like in charge for the day because like the mother superior was out for oh, whatever reason. Oh, no. Yes. Oh, that poor woman. So it was not her normal, she would not have been the person in charge of that normally. I yeah. bet she never. I'm sure herself. she didn't. Yep. So she, they go and get Bobby. Bobby comes out and, like I said, places his hand in Bonnie's hand. Sure. And they, the nun doesn't think anything of it. And they go. It wasn't until, you know, almost an hour had gone by that she was like, oh, my gosh. You know, I didn't really confirm who was that who that was. And so that's why she called the Greenlees home. And I wonder how good they were at confirming those things back in the day. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, now I know they're super on top yeah. of it. But yeah. it was a long time ago. Yeah. So they, Bobby and Bonnie, get in the cab. Mm-hmm. They go back to the cat's drugstore where Carl is waiting in Bonnie's station wagon. They get in, the cab leaves, and they drive off and they head south to farmland in rural Johnson County. 
to your house. Nope, not to my house, but another location that you know quite well. Oh my god. It's now the Cedar Creek. Just no, just just uh right near where Oak Park Mall is what? now. Yes. <laughs> Where we spent every weekend. <laughs> yeah, it's for uh, years. just off 69 Highway and 95th Street, which is where Oak Park Mall is. Good God. Yeah, so it's just, um, yeah, I mean, there was nothing there, just some farmland. They pull into a field. Right by the Barnes and Noble. That's right. <laughs> oh my God. Stopped up for a latte <laughs> So um, Bonnie gets out. They have a dog with them. They have. Bonnie's um, boxer with them. Okay. They let the boxer out of the cart, kind of runs off, and so Bonnie goes and chases off the, chases the dog, mm-hmm. and leaves Carl and Bobby in the car. Okay. And Carl, no, attempts to strangle Bobby no, with a length of clothesline. What the fuck? It's too short. He can't make it work. He oh. can't get it to. Twi- he can get it around his throat, but he can't twist it properly, and so it's not working. Oh, fuck. And so he has a thirty-eight caliber pistol in his pocket, and he pulls it out, and he goes to shoot Bobby. Well, Bobby is six years old, and he's now very alarmed, and he's in this car, and he's fighting, yeah. and he misses him with the first shot. What? Yes. And so he shoots him again, and he shoots him in the head, and he oh. d- and Bobby dies. Oh, my God. Bobby was dead before they ever sent a ransom note. Why? Yeah. Why? Why? Oh, my God. Yeah. So Bonnie is out running after this dog. Mm-hmm. And she knew the plan was to kill Bobby there. That was the plan. The and pl- she said yeah. that's better than yes, sex. But the plan was for Carl to strangle him. So she hears the shots and she's like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? And so she gets the dog and she you know, goes back to the car and there's blood everywhere mm-hmm. and Bobby's dead and so Carl is wrapping him up in some plastic sheeting that they had in the car and they wrap him up and they like put a blanket over it and the dog lays on top of the blanket oh my god and they drive back to St. Joe where the previous night they had dug a grave for Bobby oh my god. in their backyard so they take him out of the car. They pour quick lime over him. They unwrap him. They pour quick lime all over him. They wrap oh him back up God. in plastic and they bury him in this grave. This little three by five grave what they've dug the in fuck? the backyard. And then they plant a dozen chrysanthemums on top of him so that it just looks like a flower bed because you've got all this freshly dug dirt in the sure. yard now. And so they put flowers on top of it so that if anything looks suspicious, it's just a new we flower bed. We just dug bed. this up for these pretty flowers. Yep. And then after doing that, oh. they drove back to Kansas City and mailed the ransom note. So he was... Fuck them. Yes. Yeah. Horrible. <laughs> so then... I know, it's oh. terrible. It's terrible. So then, you know, a few days go by and they're interacting with the green leases and finally they get the ransom. And so they take the $600,000. Oh, good for them. And Carl is convinced that they're going to be able to track him to St. Joe somehow. Uh-huh. And so he's like, we got to leave. Let's go to St. Louis. Okay. And so they go to St. Louis. Mm-hmm. 
They get to St. Louis. They've got all this money. They check into this like seedy like apartment place where you can rent, you know, an apartment like by the week or whatever. Right, they check right. in there. And th- meanwhile, this whole time they've been drinking heavily. It is amazing that they were able to pull sure. any of this off because they've just been drunk or high the whole time because Carl's like addicted to heroin mm-hmm. and they're both major alcoholics. So they've just been like the Virginia said in the phone calls, you know. Yeah, it's totally incoherent. Seem, yes. Yeah. So they check into this motel apartment place in St. Louis. Looking sketchy as hell. Oh, yeah. Bonnie passes out in the bed. She's out cold. Great. So Carl leaves her (gasps) $2,000 and he takes off with the rest of the money. Okay. Well, (laughs) you know. So he goes, he doesn't leave town. He just goes across town and checks into a really nice hotel. (laughs) (laughs) And he meets this cabbie along the way. And he Uh kind of creates this relationship with this cabbie. Mm -hmm. And so he, like, becomes kind of his personal valet. Like, he's taking him wherever he wants. He hooks him up with um, some hookers. Like, and... Carl is just flashing all this money sure. around. He's tipping everybody, you know, crazy amounts. He's just... Because he's a fucking idiot. Yeah. He blew through a huge inheritance. So, yes. of course, he's going to yeah. blow through this right now. So, this cabbie is like, something seems sketch about this guy. Uh-huh. For sure. Well, this cab company is owned by a known Bob Moss. <laughs> <laughs> I think his name's Joe Costello. <laughs> and so he lets him know. <laughs> Are you going to make it? <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. That was just so funny. I honestly didn't even know I'd said it I until I finished. And I was like, wait, that wasn't right. That's what made it so funny when you said it like, boom. And then. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm with you now. I'm with you. So now the mob's tipped off. Right. That this guy has all this money. Shit. Okay. Yes. And I don't so, know why I'm saying shit. I don't care what happens, <laughs> what happens to this to guy. Him. Yeah, he killed a little boy. No, you know what? I do care what happens to him. I want horrible things to right. happen to him. Okay. So the cabbie lets his boss know. Right. And the, this guy, this mob boss, Bob Moss, <laughs> has a friend in the police department. Like a crooked cop. Okay. And so he lets him know what's going on. Excellent. And so they track this guy down, this Carl. Uh Uh-huh. And they arrest him. 
And they bring him to the station. They start questioning him. And they figure out, you know, this ransom's been paid. So they think it's probably the guy. They put the pieces together. So they bring him to the station. And at some point, he had transferred the ransom from the army duffel bag into two metal suitcases. Okay. Only one metal suitcase shows up at the police department when they bring Carl in. Interesting. So they only ever have recovered half of this ransom. The other half of it never been found. Lost in the moss. Yeah, that's right. So they they have Carl in there and, you know, they think they know that he's the guy that kidnapped him. So they start questioning him. But this guy, he is so drunk that they can't even properly question him. Oh, my God. At one point, he starts getting, like, violently ill because he's had so much alcohol. So Uh. they have to, like, take him to the hospital. And then they bring him back on a stretcher and are questioning him on a stretcher. Why do so many of these old-timey cases involve stretchers? (laughs) No idea. So he finally starts to kind of give him bits and pieces. He's like, yes, I was involved in the kidnapping. I, you know, I was only involved in the kidnapping. And then I turned Bobby over to this guy, Tom Marsh, Mm -hmm. who, you know. Does not exist. I don't don't know where he took him. I I wasn't involved after that. Blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Well, that story obviously falls apart. Yes. And finally, he gives him the full story. Exactly what happened. Tom Marsh is not a real person. Obviously, the boy was dead before yeah. they ever even asked for the ransom. He gives up Bonnie's identity. Bonnie comes in. They bring her in for questioning. They start they start interrogating her. And she's like, no, I had no idea this was the plan. I thought that Bobby was Carl's son and that uh-huh. Virginia was his ex-wife and that he was keep she was keeping Bobby from him. And she's like sewing this whole tale about mm-hmm. how, you know, how she was not in on it. She had no idea. And oh my word. And obviously that falls apart too. Yes. Yes. And so finally, all of the truth comes out. And they finally admit that he was killed in Kansas, which means that they <gasps> took him across, across state, state lines. lines. Yes! Mm. Which makes it a federal crime yep. and makes them eligible for the death penalty. Yeah. So the FBI gets involved. Boy, not a minute too not soon. Right. Not a minute. Mm-mm. Ultimately, they give full confessions. Yeah. And they do go to trial, but it's just... To determine their sentencing. Right. They went before a jury on November 16th, 1953. And the defense lawyers kind of half-heartedly tried to win life sentences for their clients. I don't blame them. If I was a defense lawyer and I had a client like this, I'd be like, oh, please don't be too harsh. Yeah, exactly. And I'm going to take a nap now. So they described Hetty as a woman who was destroyed by marital sadness and characterized... <laughs> Um, Hall as a man who was ruined by greed. Both were victims of alcoholism. And Bonnie's attorney said, I'm not interested in sympathy for my client. But I think after you hear the evidence for 40 years of Mrs. Hetty's life and the horrible torture she went through and, you know, she had uh, abuse after abuse, you can realize that the recommendation of life imprisonment can be the outcome in this case. Did he have any evidence of, like, actual abuse? No. Or was he just throwing the just word throwing abuse the around? throwing the word abuse around. Okay. Yeah. The prosecution 
just dashed any hopes the defense had of swaying the jury to recommend life imprisonment. The principal witness against Hall and Hetty were Hall and Hetty themselves. Mm-hmm. They read their confessions in their entirety in court for yep. the jury. And the confessions completely described like their whole plan of it. And then the moment they killed Bobby and all of it. And their, their confessions were 63 pages long. Whoa. Yeah. Just it went through every step of the thing. Yeah. I mean, that shows how much premeditation yeah. went into it. There, it said that there were women in the courtroom who cried during when they yeah. finally got to describing the murder. Of course. Um, both of Bobby's parents testified, oh. which sent, you know, a very powerful emotional message to the jury, obviously. Yeah. Other witnesses included Sister Morand who was able to identify um, Bonnie in court. Yeah. I just felt terrible for her. Like, you know she... terrible for everybody. Oh, yeah. yeah. That would be horrible. Oh, yeah. Um, You would never forgive yourself. uh, Grace Hatfield, who was from the Hatfield Hardware Company, where um, Hall went and purchased the shovel to dig the the hole. She went and testified and said, yeah, I saw him buy the by the shovel and then someone from a hardware store where he had bought the lime testified and then two FBI agents testified that they had found two bullets from a 38 caliber handgun in the station wagon and that they did ballistic tests and it proved that they were from Hall's 38 on November 19th the jury deliberated for just over an hour before sentencing (laughs) them both Mm -hmm. to death by the gas chamber yeah so this was in federal court, but there was no place for them to carry out the death sentence. They didn't have a federal like prison that had a gas chamber. Mm-hmm. And so they used like a Missouri state okay. penitentiary to to carry out their death sentences. Okay. Um, they didn't appeal at all. Really? No. Um, after they were sentenced to death, Bonnie sneered I'd rather be dead than poor (gasps) oh my god when the sentence was announced the gallery in the courtroom exploded in thunderous applause and Robert Greenlease who had been sitting quietly in the courtroom throughout the trial said it's too good for them but Mm. it's the best the law provides I agree yeah Hetty would be the first woman executed in Missouri since 1834 and she was only the the She's only one of two women ever executed, like, in federal court. Wow. Um, She was permitted to visit her lover on the night of their execution, and they dined together on their favorite meal of fried chicken. She was allowed to visit Mm -hmm. her lover? Yep. Hetty sat out uh, outside of Hall's cell while he nervously gripped the bars, and Bonnie Hetty stroked his hands and patted his head, telling him that everything was going to be all right. What a weirdo. It was said that Hall was terrified for days that he was going to be killed in prison because he was a child murderer. Yeah. And mm. he didn't feel protected. Oh, God! How terrible that must have been for him. He must have felt so vulnerable yeah. and alone. The execution of the two attracted great attention. The warden of the prison originally announced that Hall and Hetty would enter the gas chamber in bathing suits. What? And local na- local um, newspapers like drew up little cartoons of them in swimming suits. And all these women's groups like were up in arms about how inappropriate and unseemly and indecent that was. 
And so the warden changed his mind and ordered that Hall would die wearing green denim slacks and Hetty would wear a green denim dress. Well, yeah, why did he want them? I don't know. It's super weird, right? Yeah. It's just kind of his thing. (laughs) (laughs) He thought he could get away with it. Um, About half an hour before they were to die, the warden allowed the pair to be alone together in a cell, undisturbed and without supervision. Okay. When Hall stepped from the cell, lipstick was smeared on his mouth and neck. Well, yeah. Of course. (laughs) Blindfolds were then placed on the condemned pair and they were led to the gas chamber. Hetty's chief concern at the moment of her death was how she would appear before those witnessing her execution. She had curled her hair and done her makeup Mm -hmm. and um, uh, they said she spent hours getting ready that morning. Was she at all worried that she would look like an accomplice in a child murder? I don't. It doesn't sound like it. <laughs> mm. Just worried she'd have some curls out of place. Okay, relatable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she was led trembling to a metal chair, only inches from where Hall sat in the gas chamber. They were executed together, at the, side by side in a gas chamber at the same exact time. In the same chamber? Yes. That is so. They put two chairs in the chamber. This sounds like a bad movie. Like, if it's this were in a so movie, you'd be like, weird. no, be they like, wouldn't it would do never that. Happen. Yeah. Apparently it happened. Weird. She turned her blindfolded face to the warden and said, thanks for everything. You've been very kind. And then she turned to Carl and said, are you all right, honey? To which he replied, yes, mama. Ew. <laughs> The doors to the chamber were then closed and witnesses could see through the glass um, that Hetty and Hall were talking quickly to each other, but you couldn't hear their final words. Yeah. Cyanide pellets were dropped into small vats of sulfuric acid beneath the chairs in which the killer sat and Hall breathed deep, swallowed once and died. Mm -hmm. Bonnie Hetty fought death to the last second, though. She held her breath until she couldn't hold it anymore. And then finally, when the room was filled with fumes, she took a breath and died. Wow. Yeah. (sighs) So as I mentioned, only half the ransom was ever found. Yeah. So there's lots of theories about what happened to it. But the generalized theory is that it ended up in the mob somewhere. Of course. And this, this... Cooked crop. Cooked. <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> Crooked <laughs> cop. Uh huh. And his Bob Moss. <laughs> um, took it. Yeah. And his name was Lieutenant Shoulders. I think it's just a funny name. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, they ended up calling for his resignation. They said they couldn't prove it, obviously, but they knew but they he was knew involved, he, yeah. and so he. Resigned against his will, and he moved to Hawaii, and he was kept under surveillance by the FBI for a long time. Really? Hoping that they could find some proof that he had the money. But Well, if he could retire to Hawaii, doesn't yeah. that say <laughs> <Right? it? laughs> Yes. As for the green leases, they tried to carry on Bobby's memory through philanthropy. Um, they gifted a piece of property on State Line to build Rockhurst High School. <gasps> What? On what would have been Bobby's 15th birthday. They dedicated it as Greenlease Memorial Campus. Wow. 
They also endowed funds for Greenlease Library at Rockhurst University, which opened in 1967 and is still, yeah, still open today. It's where my dad got his master's. <laughs> <laughs> um, Virginia Greenlease never got over the loss of her son, sure. obviously. And she outlived the rest of her family, including her daughter, Virginia, which oh I think God. would have just been horrible. You're kidding me. Yeah, Virginia died really young. She died um, in the late, uh, I think in the late 70s or early 80s, I believe. I didn't write this down, yeah. obviously, but I believe. And the mother, Virginia, it's very confusing when they're both yeah. named Virginia, mm-hmm. lived till 2001. Oh, my. And upon her death, she left a million dollars to Rockhurst University and a million dollars to Rockhurst High School in her husband and son's names. Wow. Yeah. Oh my God. So that's the that's the I kidnapping had no of Bobby Green. Idea. I have never heard of this. How do we have this many weird cases? I in have Kansas City? no idea. Wow. No idea. That was crazy upsetting. Very upsetting. I pro- I'm not going to do any more kidnappings for a while. Yeah, right. <laughs> Stay tuned next week. Can't do any more. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was writing this one up, and I was like, "Really? This is I'm. This is too many kidnappings." <laughs> <laughs> we gotta have a hard. I've already done a bunch of research. On yeah, no, I, I hear you. I'm in too deep. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, that was good. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's a crazy case. Yes. And to never have heard. I mean, we have lived here. I've lived here my whole life. You have not, but. Almost. Almost. Yeah. And never heard of it. And it happened. I mean, you know, right <laughs> around here. At the mall we used to go to all the time. Oh God. The freaking Greenlease Motor Car Company still standing right down the street. That is so weird. Super weird. There's a campus at Rockhurst named after him. There's a library at Rockhurst named after him. I, yeah, I, I don't know. I need a minute after this one. This is weird. Pretty nuts. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to wrap up this episode today by talking about something, some feedback that my sister gave <laughs> us about the podcast. Okay. So she was listening Wait, which sister? Casey. Casey, okay. Was listening to the episode where we talk about Dateline and we mm-hmm. talk about Keith Morrison. Yeah. She texted me and she said... Did you give me false information? No. Okay. She said, those are the worst Keith Morrison impressions I've ever heard. What? And I said, hold the fucking phone. Uh-huh. First of all, they're not Keith Morrison impressions. They're... Impressions of Bill, Bill Hader, Hader doing Keith Morrison impressions, and they were spot fucking on. <laughs> <laughs> so I am going on the record yeah. right now and saying, Casey, you are wrong. Mm-hmm. They were excellent. I'm trying to think of how to respond in a Keith Morrison impression. <laughs> um, speaking of feedback yes. that we have received, yes. do you want to talk about the email we got? Yes. Okay. I'm actually going to pull it up. Excellent. Um, so, everyone, Brandy has finally gotten the feedback she deserves. <laughs> <laughs> it's in regard to um, the Balloon Boy case. We got a very upset email. A very strongly worded email. 
Should I read the whole thing or is that over the top? Just, uh, no, just I think bit. let's get the high points and you can read how they finish it. Okay. Yeah. So the high, the basically the person was um, dissatisfied with my delivery of that, of the balloon boy case because I gave a very biased view on it mm-hmm. and, uh, He hadn't finished the episode yet and hadn't listened to our other episodes yet, but was sure that I had at some point um, issued a correction about how I delivered that story. And I'm here to tell you, I'm not given a correction. Brandy, (laughs) I am 100% on his side. (laughs) You know, the whole time in that episode... You were like mocking. You were making fun. You you seemed to think that if you wanted to create like a basically a spaceship type thing, you needed some sort of engineering degree. Yeah. I no, um, that's, color me embarrassed. <laughs> I think all you need is some tinfoil and a dream. Why don't you read for uh, our listeners how he signed off the uh, the email there about. Uh, OK. Man, just trying to take care of his family. So I'm going to I'm gonna do a little more. He goes, okay. Balloon Boy does seem to be a very thinly veiled conspiracy, and it does come across highly biased and inaccurate <laughs> how you talk about it, which does call into question every other thing you have and will ever talk about. Oh, man. I'm sorry. Did I miss the part where we claim to be an unbiased news source? <laughs> <laughs> I like that it calls into question... Everything I've said and will ever say. Fair. (laughs) So then he gives us some links to some YouTube videos to watch so that we can be more educated. The links are of Richard Heaney talking about the balloon boy. And he says, you may wish to watch blah, blah, blah. To, you know, not crap on a father that was doing his best given the circumstances and pressure put on his family. Okay. <laughs> so, my theory right away, this is Richard Heaney emailing us. Had the same exact thought. Has to be. Has to be. 100%. Only he would care this much. Yes. No one else would give no a shit. No one else would give a shit. Norman thinks I'm wrong. Story of my life. Yes. I... I am 100% thinking it's him. So I emailed him back. Oh, you did? Yes. (laughs) I emailed him back. Dot, dot, dot. Is this Richard? (laughs) He has not returned the email. Oh, it's totally him. And he's like, oh, shit. (laughs) I gave myself away. So I, I said to Norman, do you think I should respond and ask if it's him? And Norman was like, ha, ha, yeah. And I didn't realize he was kidding. I did it because I thought yeah. it sounded like a great idea. I think it sounds like a and great Norman idea. And Norman was like, do you realize what you've done? You've fed the trolls. Because to Norman, this is just a troll. Oh, yeah. Either way, uh, I love it. Either way, I'm thrilled. Yes. And I just want to say, I don't trust anything you're saying right now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't trust anything you've said in the past. Or anything you will ever say in the future. I like I like turning this all on you. Like like it's not also about me. How dare I crap on a man who was just trying to do his best for his family. And you know, you made fun of the band that they put together. Sure did. Man. Hmm. I on the other hand was fully supportive. Richard, Richard, you can email me. 
<laughs> you can you can tell me it's you. It's fine. <laughs> Let me be right. If you would like to uh, send us an email and tell us how <laughs> terribly <laughs> we covered a case <laughs> and how uh, biased we were, which what would be the fucking point of this podcast if we didn't give our opinions? I don't know. I wouldn't listen to that shit. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, we're not news. Yeah, no, this is not a news source. (laughs) (laughs) Never claim to be. If you'd like to send us an email, it's uh, lgtcpodcast at gmail.com. It's Yihad Gilad. (laughs) 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 And we'll let you know if you got accepted into your favorite program. That's right. Or if you'd like to leave us a rating or a review or a review <laughs> head on over to iTunes do that for us find us on social media and uh, join us next week when we'll be experts on two whole new topics podcast adjourned and now for a note about our process I read a bunch of stuff then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary and I copy and paste from the best sources on the web and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. For this episode, I got my info from articles on CNN.com, The New York Times, and The Court's Decision. And I got my info from The Kansas City Star, FBI.gov, Murderpedia.org, and GreenleaseFamily.com. For a full list of our sources, visit LGTCPodcast.com. Any errors are, of course, ours, but please don't take our word for it. Go read their stuff. <laughs>